Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome to Adventist Voices, Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter. This week, I am joined by Dr. Greg Honus, who is the West Region Director for the Southern California Conference of Seventh-day Adventists, and is also celebrating, along with me and I'm sure many others, the completion of his Doctor of Philosophy degree in Practical Theology from Claremont School of Theology. Thanks for joining me today. A pleasure, Alex. Thank you. So uh, I've been looking forward to having this conversation with you because of your myriad interests. And I thought the best way to get into this conversation is to mention we're going to end up talking about your recently uh, completed dissertation. Congratulations. Thank you so much. It's quite a relief to be done. (laughs) I'm sure. Well, what I want to do, though, is actually start at the beginning uh, and talk a little bit about your early years and what drew you to the topics that you explored. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but having to do with the environment, food, sustainability, religion. Is that that a good way of kind of describing at least some of the subjects? Sure. That's a a great introduction to a question on early childhood. I I grew up in a small town in California called Sonora. And my father, who was a physician, uh, wanted to be even further out of this small town than the town itself permitted. And he purchased a plot of land and an existing house um, 10 miles out of town, up in the hills and nowhere, really. And so we were surrounded by nature. nearest house was a half a mile away by air. Um, there very little in the way of uh, car traffic because the driveway is about a mile long and private. And we just, uh, since seven, I was here. Uh, we grew up with uh, kind of a conservative philosophy around Sabbath. So we could not swim or horseback ride or ride bikes or that kind of thing, but we could uh, definitely go down to the pond and collect frogs or look at pollywogs or uh, catch butterflies or, you know, find a salamander under a rock. And we could take hikes and see where water flowed and if we could see any creatures. And so very early on, that kind of exposure was a, a very positive part of my, my upbringing, watching the red-tailed hawks circle about uh, over the, the field. And, of course, working the land, uh, just irrigating and, and walking it and, and being a part of the animal life that we had here that was domesticated as well. And the other part of it was uh, my father's sort of care and concern for um, almost a Sierra conservation type thing when we were backpacking. It was a, a care for the campsite. You never took anything into the wilderness that you weren't going to bring back out. Sure. You always left your campsite better than you found it. And this carried over, too, to uh, just stewardship of the entire mountain. When we would got, come up Big Hill Road, um, I can recall he had a like a 1969 or 70 Toyota Land Cruiser, and he had a trailer on it. And I would ride on the running board, literally, as a kid. 
Fun. And he would go very slow, and I would jump off the running board and collect trash all the way up the six miles of the hill <laughs> and uh, throw it into the trailer, and we would take it to the dump. It was a way of, again, honoring the landscape. So that was, that was some of my early experience that shaped my interest in ecology. And, of course, growing up vegetarian, you're, you're formed by that sort of animal ethic piece that says, I don't eat anything with a mother kind of uh, yeah. idea. And uh, I don't know how truly ecological uh, that ends up being, except that vegetarian practices uh, are more ecological than, than meat-eating practices. Definitely. So it sounds like you had a, a kind of – um, conservative upbringing, traditional Adventist upbringing in those days, spending a lot of time in nature. Is it safe to say your dad probably wouldn't have thought of himself as a uh, radical environmentalist? Very safe. I think his interest in um, Mother Earth news might have pushed him a little bit toward the, the moderate to liberal end of that spectrum because he was interested very early on in solar heat and solar-powered uh, warm water and those kinds of issues. Uh, he was interested in, in how forests might be managed, those kinds of pieces. But um, I wouldn't say he would have thought of himself as an environmentalist or a, you know, a tree hugger or whatever yeah. nomenclature you want to apply. Well, it's interesting because there – um, there's that theory out there, horseshoe theory, I'm sure you're familiar with it, which is that it's always interesting when certain ends of an ideological issue actually bend in and there's some crossover. And I think that Adventists with their uh, concern for the environment um, and their, or I should say nature and their connection to nature as the sort of, um, uh, as a, is a, revelation of God um, along with the Bible, of course, secondary, but very um, important. Um, all those writings of Ellen White about raising kids in nature and how good that is for them uh, kind of bends over into the kind of conversations that folks have um, perhaps um, on the left side uh, where they're interested in sort of Montessori practices and sort of freedom and, of course, connecting with nature, but in uh, for a, a motivated by um, different writers. So I find, I always find these sort of things interesting. How did you navigate that as you kind of grew into your ministry? Was, was, did you find it easy to develop your own identity separate from that and figure out what you wanted to keep and not keep? Or was there some struggle in there? Identity is always complex and always a struggle. At least that's how I've experienced it uh, as an Adventist, as an adopted child, as a, um, you know, person trying to figure out your own values, mores, um, and, and morals in the end, really, yeah. uh, trying to make your way in the world. My father was good at, um, my mom was very loving and affectionate and caring and, and relational. My father was very good at conversation. And as a physician uh, and a bright guy, he he liked to challenge me religiously. He liked to challenge me theologically. So we would listen to a sermon, for example, and come home. And 
almost never criticize the pastor or digest the pastor per se, but we would digest the message and talk about things we liked or techniques we noted or theological nuances that were of interest, and then things we blatantly disagreed with as well. And that sort of critical uh, way of of listening to a sermon and uh, engaging with my father really helped develop my critical sensibilities uh, as a child and as a young adult. And uh, exposure to books and reading and and those kinds of things as well. Um, But I enjoyed thinking about religion in general and was attracted to that, I think, from a very early, early age. I remember reading C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters and coming across the Screwtape Letter where he talks about uh, the relationship of the past, the present, the future, time in general. And I excitedly got out of my bed and went and, and woke my parents up to read the passage to them to tell them <laughs> that I had been thinking about this stuff and that I thought C.S. Lewis was right on. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I'm sure, even though they might not have acted thrilled, I'm sure they were thrilled to know that. Um. So talk to me a little bit about how you took this interest in in religion and also in critical engagement with it into um, your thoughts on a career. Oh, that was a real struggle. Um, I, my father saw me, I think, as somebody who should go into uh, an independent practice, which there was a lot of wisdom to, not to work for somebody, particularly a church or denomination because of the constraints. And he could see, you know, not only my independence, but my thought. Um, So I think he would have liked to see me go into psychiatry or psychology or something along those lines. And he wasn't disappointed. I would say he was supportive, but he just observed that uh, I had an independent streak. And I think he was, he was right. Um, Choosing ministry wasn't easy. I went to college and declared an undecided major and a music minor and, uh, you know, joked a lot about it, but it was kind of painful not to know what I wanted to do. And my sophomore year, I had just been feeling the urge and the call to uh, go into theology. And so I named it my major. And the next year I went uh, to Korea as a student missionary for a year and found that God was uh, very present in, in many ways, in many places, and came back, finished my degree, also finished a psych degree, and ended up hired by the Central California Conference, my home conference. And uh, they, you know, gave me a church assignment, and it was a learning curve from there. And part of the learning curve was learning to moderate both the ups and the downs of, of people's affirmation or criticism. Part of it was uh, trying to navigate territory, kind of an inner space, if you will, uh, where my own identity differed sharply or differed at least in materially from what I'd been raised with or certain values or perspectives and how that interplayed with traditional theology and conservative living. And part of it was um, really joyful too. And I just, you know, as time went on, I found more and more ways to adapt and keep, keep to an identity and maintain integrity with being uh, critical but affirming, uh, loving my church but not seeing it as perfect or having all the answers or being right about everything and not needing it to be. And I think that was a saving grace, actually, and really helped me in my ministry because 
as I was honest about my own perspectives or struggles, I think a lot of other people felt that they could trust me and uh, felt that, you know, they had a fellow traveler, not somebody who had all the answers. Yeah. Well, um, if you don't mind me asking, since we're going to get up to uh, your time in Claremont and um, your recent uh, graduate work, can you talk a little bit about um, the uh, a transition? Was there a point? Was it gradual or a, a very um, clear decision point where you went from uh, sort of focused on um, sort of local church ministry to thinking um, about kind of your own intellectual development? Was it all wrapped in together? Or was there a point where you thought, you know what, I want to pursue uh, these ideas in a very serious way? Oh, great question. I had um, thought through in college uh, sort of a 10-year path. And in my imagination, I, I had admired um, uh, the pastor at Pacific Union College very much uh, and wanted to emulate that job description. I mean, here was somebody who got to do counseling, who got to do preaching, who got to do a midweek service, who got to teach classes. And it just sort of struck me as an ideal environment, really. And then I ended up in the real world of, of <laughs> ministry and in Central California and small and large churches and dealing with, with people with varying degrees of education and so forth. And uh, married and had a child and, and got busy with life and yeah. really in some ways forgot about that dream. Um, and it, it was always in the back of my head and I was always uh, going to conferences, uh, attending lectures, part of the Adventist forum uh, for many, many years. First in San Diego, we would drive down for the lectures there and then uh, the LA forum and, you know, just, my experience at La Sierra in graduate school was amazing. I, uh, it's a long story, so I don't have time to tell it here. But, uh, you know, providentially, I think, I was able to go to La Sierra and do a Master of Arts in Religion instead of going to Andrews University and doing an MDiv, which allowed me to stay, you know, um, on, on ordination track as well, which was amazing. Yeah. And uh, so all that kind of worked for good. And uh, I had a wonderful experience at La Sierra overall, and that you know that really left me with the desire or the hope that maybe I could do something something more down the road. In 2013, I took a sabbatical, and I was going through old notes and papers and just kind of thinking about where I wanted the next chapters of my my life to go. And I realized that I had had that dream to do a doctoral degree, so I thought the most practical piece would be to get a dean in. And I had been turned down once before by Fuller, and I couldn't quite understand why. And so I tried. Um, that's that's never fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it, it was very kind of, I just couldn't couldn't quite grasp it. My grades had been good in graduate school. And, you know, just, so I tried at um, Claremont. I, they have a DMIN program, too. And I looked at that and talked to an advisor there. And I think I may have even applied in the meantime to Andrews. In fact, I know I did. And Andrews also turned me down. And I thought, they take anybody, <laughs> almost. What, you know, what's, what's going on here? It wasn't until I talked to folks at Claremont that I understood that you have to have an MDiv in order to get a DMIN. Oh. Um, it's a matter of 
uh, American theological standards, uh, or society standards and uh, rules and regulations. You have to have so many semester units of credit at the master's level in order to qualify for the DMN. And I had a master of arts in religion. So I had an academic degree. They weren't telling me I wasn't smart enough, which is what I thought they were telling me. (laughs) What they were telling me was that I didn't have the right number of credits and degree. And once that became clear and I did the math, uh, the PhD was the obvious answer. So let's get into that uh, part of your story. Um, Tell me about what it was like uh, at Claremont. Well, at first, it was just really overwhelming. I, I started out the gate with some pretty heavy hitters. I did um, a kind of spiritual formation class with Andrew Dreitzer, uh, dealing with uh, uh, contempt- contemplative practices and, and uh, spiritualities going back to early church fathers, really. And that was the, that was the name of the course. And that was all online, which I'd never done before. So that was really a huge challenge. And then I took a course from Philip Clayton called Ecological Civilization. Hmm. And that one rocked my world. Uh, first of all, Philip Clayton is a prodigious mind, a wonderful human being, <laughs> tremendous scholar, but a very uh, demanding too. He has high expectations of the students. And I intuited this and really wanted to please him. And so I worked phenomenally hard in that class and really dug into not only the material, but the projects. And that I think really cemented my interest in um, where we were going ecologically. It also was phenomenally depressing, if I'm honest. Um, I had an inkling that things were bad. I had no idea how bad they were. And this was in 2014. And you're talking about uh, climate change and sort of our, our, Correct. our relationship with the environment. Correct. What's a big concept that you got out of uh, Clayton's class besides this depressing uh, understanding of the world? Well, yeah, nobody wants to live there, not even me. Um, <laughs> what I got out of it was that we really have to move toward an ecological civilization. We have to live differently. We have to think differently. We have to consume differently. Um, we have to raise children differently. We really need to think about, rethink every, everything we do, uh, the energy expenditures that we make um, and demands that we draw, um, how we grow food. Uh, that was one of the emergent things that uh, came up later in my dissertation and what food means for the environment. Um, all of these things kind of came to a head in my time there. My, my project was actually on early childhood education and preschools, and I, I looked at the concept of green preschools. Uh, we had one at our school, at our church there in Santa Clarita, where I pastored, and uh, that became an easy subject. A uh, little patch of earth preschool with Sally Switek. And actually there are videos on YouTube with me interviewing her about that project. And then um, I looked at Esalen as well. Uh, they have a school up there and uh, amazing, amazing place that uh, actually Dr. Clayton had spent some time. So uh, it, it proved to be an interesting project about looking at ways we can take a a world with children suffering from nature deficit and create environments even in the city where they have access to dirt and insects and play and sunshine and rocks and trees to climb and 
spaces that are growing things and harvesting and just really uh, transform the educational environment from, you know, the letter B, the color brown and the number two. Yeah. Uh, to something far more engaging and uh, something that, that probably in some ways comes closer to my own childhood. You know, it, I really appreciate that you're thinking about the ways that, um, you know, if we're going to uh, survive uh, as a species uh, with any sort of uh, wholeness, our relationship with the earth is going to have to change. And it's really a generational conversation. You're uh, bringing that into Adventism, I think, in a, in a really significant way. And you're also helping us think about food in a, in a way that is um, important. Uh, I don't you know, I'm not putting my stamp of approval on it or anything. I just think that Adventists, uh, you know, have a very uh, traditionally a very um, uncomfortable relationship with food dating. You know, I don't blame Ellen White necessarily for it. I think that we I've read enough of, you know, Sylvester Graham and, and all this sort of progressive ideas around food in the mid to late 19th century. Um, obviously folks are familiar with Kellogg and we just sort of picked up, uh, we just sort of married this very innovative uh, ideas about new types of, uh, human, uh, consumption with, um, religious ideas of guilt and salvation. And that's yeah. really, um, complicated our relationship with food. Tell me about your relationship. Uh, with food and, and where do you find, um, you know, something um, uh, different uh, to, to hang your theological uh, hook on? So just to respond to what you, you said about Kellogg and so forth, it's, it's what you're identifying as a problematic relationship is, I think, true. There were many good things that came out of the late 1800s in terms of views on food, yeah, and yet it was very tightly connected, as you've identified, to spirituality and to uh, sanctification and therefore to righteousness. And that strain continues in our churches today in a very detrimental kind of way. And, and another problem is that ultimately uh, food and behavioral modification, I'm thinking particularly of, of, of you know, sexuality, um, Kellogg moved from an Adventist position to being disciplined by the church for being a panentheist, and ultimately, within a very short period of time of, of being disciplined by the church, had actually moved into eugenics. Yeah. And uh, food was a means of triggering uh, bad impulses or good impulses or, uh, you know, healthy healthy responses of the body or disease responses of the body. And there's, there's some scientific evidence of the latter. Um, but it, it problematized our relationship with food. That's a good way of putting it. And I've had a difficult relationship with food. I mean, food is pleasure. Food is socializing. Food is uh, the table ministry of the Eucharist. Food is so many things to us as Christians and people and as cultures. Um, but I, at least I hope by the end of the interview, you might agree that, that how we raise food and how we consume food is perhaps the single biggest factor that we have any control over in, in, in how we address the environment. Well, um, let's explore that. What do you mean by that? 
uh, strong statement. Well, let's take a, a, a can of fry chick, and I, I mean no disparity to the or, or dispersion. That's the word <laughs> I'm looking for there. I mean no uh, disrespect to the manufacturer. <laughs> to the to the noble of, fry of, chick. <laughs> exactly to the can itself, to the taste, to the food, or to the people who produce it. But you're talking about a soy product, and uh, soy is land intensive. It's almost always mega farmed. It's not a small crop uh, farming technique that's used. So you're looking at uh, really large 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, even larger acre farms that are monocropped. Yeah. And monocropping uh, allows for easy control with pesticides. But, of course, Monsanto engineers 99% of the soy product out there. And so it's built with resistance to uh, Roundup. And so Roundup can be sprayed on soybean fields indiscriminately, uh, killing all sorts of things, mostly weeds, as they advertise, but other things too. And, and uh, you know, it, it goes into streams and uh, water tables and everything else. So that's, that's the first impact. Then you're harvesting, if, even if you find a, the 1% that's not uh, a GMO and not uh, grown or is organically grown, then you're talking about very limited productions for human consumption in ways that you can't tell from the can whether they, which one they're buying. And then in processing it, you're talking about a hexane product um, that washes the soybean to break it down into flake or into a particle. And that's a petroleum product that comes from the petroleum industry. So when we drill for oil, uh, this is one of the products that's made and literally hundreds of thousands of gallons, millions of gallons are used in processing soybeans. And then it's um, further processed. It's fibers are drawn and it's spun. And so that requires a certain type of uh, facility. And then you're looking at putting all the ingredients together and manufacturing it. And then you have to can it. And the process of canning, of course, is uh, involving steel and steel production. So lots of energy there. And anything that, uh, you know, goes into the, the makeup of the steel or the iron itself, the tin. It's, we say tin cans, but they're very little tin. Then you're dealing with BPAs in terms of the lining and whether that's healthy or not. And once it's canned, it has to be labeled. And, of course, those labels have to be designed and they're printed. And we don't know if the inks are sustainably uh, created or not, uh, whether they're toxic. And they're put on paper, which is also a processed product. They're wrapped in, set in cardboard, which has to come from the milling of trees. Mm -hmm. And it's a processed product itself. It's all wrapped in plastic, which is another petroleum product. And then it's shipped via truck to a distribution center. And in a distribution center, then it has to be warehouse. So you're talking about building distribution centers. You're talking about ways in which those distribution centers then get product to market. And all of that involves trucks and fuel. Uh, and then you drive to the market and buy this product and you open it and you eat it. And now where do you dispose of the can? It's going to go into a landfill. And so when I talk about food production being a huge impact on the planet, it's, it's it's gigantic with almost anything that's packaged or uh, taken over long distances to arrive at our table. Yeah. Wow. That was uh, fascinating. I, I felt, I feel like you could, 
I'm sure you've read Annie Leonard's The Story of Stuff. I feel like we need an Adventist version of that where you uh, trace the the incredible global impact of, of the sort of things that we think of as, uh, um, you know, familiar to our, our, uh, our subculture. Um, how did you, did you set out to, um, explore food as a, um, as a global, um, uh, commodity and as something that we need to be thinking of, uh, so broadly, um, through your research or was that something that you were thinking of, um, during your pastoral ministry? No, I think uh, my initial thoughts on food were less about production and globalism and uh, where food moves and how it moves and how that impacts things. Um, my thoughts were more about food and spirituality probably going into this. And I was very interested in the food, the way the food movement is sort of supplanting uh, the church movement. In other words, I observed that in my community in Los Angeles, uh, I could go to a restaurant, say in Echo Park, um, and find a breakfast place with a community table. And inevitably, when my wife and I would order and sit down, we would be across from another couple or some individuals or a family. We'd strike up a conversation. Oh, what's that you're eating? Oh, I got this. And we're the type of people who, well, would you like to taste this? Would you like to try it? And so pretty, fo- pretty soon we're food sharing with people we don't even know. Wow. Having wonderful conversations at community tables with people that we may never see again. And it really felt like church. <laughs> I mean, it was social. It was uh, connecting. It was table ministry. It was table food sharing. It was uh, an encounter. And, and in that encounter, just as the disciples see Jesus for the first time as he breaks bread on the road to Emmaus, and recognized him in that act, uh, I, I sort of felt a spiritual uh, life in the breaking of bread with people that I didn't even know in these places. And I observed that people were really starting to think about food, not only in aesthetic and taste terms, but in terms of localism and farm-raised and some of these other sorts of uh, descriptors that we're now increasingly familiar with, organic and so forth. And it occurred to me that uh, there was a disparity there between my own upbringing as a vegetarian and what I was observing in the world of restaurants and cafes. So that's really what gave uh, rise to my interest. And then it kind of evolved into a more hardcore realization that when I eat a banana, it's been grown probably an area that was once jungle that's been cut down. And now banana plantation has been put in and chances are good. Someone has died on that plantation in the last year from a snake bite. And chances are good that uh, the banana was hired, uh, excuse me, harvested very green and put on a ship and at great uh, cost in terms of materials and fuel uh, brought to my shores where, again, multiple steps were taken to get it to the grocery store where I pay 29 cents a pound. And while it's wonderful, uh, excuse me, wonderful potassium and nutrient, um, there's a cost to having bananas for 29 cents a pound, human yeah. and environmental. Yeah. Well, that's such a good uh, reminder for us these days, especially. I think coming out of um, 
this pandemic gives us an opportunity to really reset our relationship to things and food mm-hmm. and social mm-hmm. and socializing as well. I'm so glad you talk about your experience there in Echo Park in Los Angeles because uh I think the the way that um the f- kind of farm to table movement or new american cuisine talks about food can be really instructive for um folks who are pursuing a kind of spiritual understanding of of um the their their body as the temple of of um, the holy spirit absolutely Talk to me as we're starting to wrap up here about um, some of the major conclusions you've completed your research. What um, what are s- some of the sort of innovative conclusions that you're drawing from your work, and and what do you think um, uh, folks who are interested in in these sort of conversations should be uh, talking about, and and who should they be reading? Wow, great questions. Um, <laughs> what to take on? <laughs> I, I think two significant things emerged from the research. First uh, was that, in point of fact, uh, the despite the U theory, um, I think Adventism has a very awkward relationship with environmentalism. And what I discovered was that that is there. There is a complex. Uh, circle of, of reasons for this, including, you know, structural, um, well, what would I say? There are structural, socio-political, theological uh, embedded reasons, kind of part of Adventist DNA sure. for why we have such a challenging relationship. And part of it goes to our origins as a Protestant movement, as a European white movement, uh, with all the embedded uh, strengths and weaknesses of that, and including weaknesses like racism and colonialism, those sorts of frames. And then moving to, uh, you know, not just whiteness, but thinking about uh, our mission movement and the, the colonial frame and the way in which uh, we colonize with food. <laughs> yeah. How that became a colonial tool. And it just... I, I, I don't have time, obviously, in this interview to cover all this, but I realized there were just tons of resistances, mostly coming from what I would call white evangelical fundamentalist frames. And so as the church has moved, in my view, and I think I can document that, I think I did document it increasingly in that direction, we're further alienated from um ecological concerns, and primarily because of politics. Um, and I don't, I don't really know how to address that in the context of our wider Adventist society, uh, or even the white evangelical, evangelical fundamentalist frame in the wider Adventist society. And by the way, because of uh, the way colonialism works, you don't have to be white to have bought into that frame. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... So at the end of the day, um, what I realized was that evangelicalism couldn't help me with this problem. There weren't uh, the internal resources that had been produced in some excellent writings from Adventists on ecology and environmental concerns and creation care and so forth. I mean, outstanding scholars, really great people, but it hasn't had a significant 
impact on the denomination as a whole. And so I thought, how can I bypass this? This this created not only its own chapter, but but gave rise to a whole nother way of looking at my problem. And how do I bypass this? And so one of the ways I did that was to use what we might call spiritual practices. That is to say, sitting with images, writing poetry, reflecting, um, even meditating on those images or on, on some sort of theme or idea around ecology or the goodness of the earth or the beauty of the earth or destruction that we see around us. And then spiritual practices that would involve liturgy. So writing a lament or a poem or something along these lines and using these practices with pastors, sitting with them for three hours at a time, really just not concentrating on the political barriers or the social barriers or the other pieces, but using this as a time to breathe and get in touch with what we really value, what we really want, where we really want to be in life in terms of how we want to live and whether nature should survive and, and how connected we are to it or not, those kinds of things. And so uh, out of that, I was really surprised to find that the, the time I spent with pastors and the pre-survey and post-survey not only revealed significant movement, which in, in all the categories I tested, which was really great, but I was able to look at the results in terms of four Fs. One was fear, uh, one was fatigue, one was futility, and ultimately one was facility. And so the idea was that we're moving from these three Fs to the fourth, which is facility, that is to say greater environmental awareness and willingness to care. Hmm. And and I'll just be brief, but one of the things, for example, under um, fatigue came up was uh, compassion fatigue. I've just really wondered how we could see what was happening around us and not respond. And the answer came back is STS. It's a sort of mild form of post-traumatic stress disorder. And it's overstimulation where so many things come to us as pastors and people bombarding us with things to care about. You know, you watch TV for a few minutes and it's, you know, children in this, in this area of the world, or it's, you know, it's, the SPCA or whatever it is, just terrible images coming at us, uh, making appeals for money and support, and and we're fatigued. Yeah. And so environment becomes a really low priority when you're trying to deal with job, family, get from place to place, and manage fatigue around all of the crises that you're constantly witness to. And that was very instructive. I mean, it was really helpful. And then to see us spend time with these practices and sort of bypass the politics and come out clearer that we really want to uh, attempt to make a difference by preaching or by implementing green programs in our churches or um, in the way we design a liturgy or read a text. Um, it was it was really cool to see that. And I wouldn't say, with, you know, the group was, oh, magically transformed. <laughs> I would say that we were able to sit with our fears and our futilities and our frustrations and our fatigue and move to greater facility. And, and I don't know how else to do it, but to spend that kind of intensive time very carefully listening to one another in safe settings. Hmm. That's beautiful. And I really appreciate you taking the time to work with pastors with, and, and introduce um, or cultivate these spiritual practices with them. It gives me a lot of hope. Um, to Thank wrap, you. to wrap up, sure. 
I would like to know what gives you hope these days. We're um, talking about some um, issues that could be uncomfortable for folks or certainly are not yeah. always fun to think about um, as real as they are. Um, yeah. How do you uh, keep a, a optimistic framework uh, in light of the, the big issues that you're um, well, interested in? If you want in? me to be real, I don't always keep an optimistic framework. Sure. Um, I just have to be candid and say that sometimes this is, this is very, I live in fatigue and fear and futility. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what brings me hope, I, I, ecologically speaking, I'm, I'm, I'm guardedly hopeful that as, more and more evidence about global warming continues to stack up. More and more people are beginning to take, you know, to awaken to the problem in the present crisis. Um, we're kind of moving politically back into space where the Paris Climate Accord is reentering, those kinds of things. I'm not, I'm not sure what the long term of that is, but in the short term, I'm grateful. Yeah. And our young people are globally mobilizing, many of them. Uh, our own Adventist youth, for example, are, are rather woke, as they say, on mm -hmm. this subject. Yeah. Second thing that gives me hope is out of COVID-19, I've seen our pastors in the West region and in the conference in general, the church in general, really adapt. The adaptive capacities of pastors, lay leaders, congregations, as demonstrated through COVID-19, has really been profound. Uh, it's possible to shift paradigms. It's possible to redefine the nature of church community. Uh, and I'm particularly proud of my team. I mean, they just did an outstanding job. They gave me a lot of, a lot of support and hope. And our churches are stronger in many ways post COVID than I could have possibly imagined. I, I really wondered if we wouldn't be decimated. And in point of fact, I think we're stronger, as I just mentioned, in so many ways. I'd, I'd say the third point of hope is our amazing young people. I kind of hinted at that earlier, but so many of them are interested in issues around race, um, are concerned with unbridled capitalism. Uh, many of them carry significant debt and wonder what that's going to look like in the future. Yeah, They uh, have some appreciation for and frustration with the industrialized prison complex and the incarceration of black and brown bodies dominantly. They realize the importance of having an environment that that is as created, that functions, that, that, that has ecosystems at work. And they're much more accepting of not only differently abled people, but people on the gender spectrum. And I think, you know, we're, they're struggling in their own rights and, and trying to figure it out just as we all did coming up through. But I'm really, I'm really optimistic and encouraged and hopeful when I hear these young people speak, even if it's um, in a concerned way, because they're 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 awake, yeah. they're conscious, they're they're engaged, they're beginning to appeal to the issues that really affect people on this planet in significant ways. And I think for so long we've struggled. I, I can remember being at PUC and making the point that you know while we looked down at the students of Berkeley for their lifestyles. They were protesting nuclear proliferation while we were trying to get uh, shorts legalized on campus. <laughs> wow, priorities. It, well, yeah, there's, there's something about the moral magnitude of the crisis that we face um, that I think our young people uh, have some grasp of, and, and that gives me great hope. 
Well, it's been a joy for me to listen to you. Thank you so much for all the hard work you put into not only your research, but your um, administrative duties and your leadership uh, to uh, so many pastors and, and our congregations. I really appreciate that. Oh, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. I wish you all the best. Goodbye. Blessings. Bye-bye. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move when the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely 